Today's episode of Transform Your Workplace is brought to you by Zenium HR. If you're finding that HR payroll and benefits is getting in the way of you carrying out your mission and vision for your organization, make sure to connect with Zenium. They help business owners and leaders focus on their mission by taking care of the nuances and administration of HR payroll and benefits. Learn more at zeniumhr.com. Today's episode features Ginny Clark. Ginny has had an amazing HR and recruiting career. She has a long history of executive recruiting. She's led the diversity hiring efforts for Google and is doing some really awesome work. She hosts a podcast as well. And in this episode, we're covering everything from the great resignation, quiet quitting, onboarding, recruiting. We, we touch it all because she's got such an amazing career that uh, we kind of jump all over the place and you're going to get a lot of great insight from Ginny. Enjoy and make sure to follow Ginny's podcast, connect with her on social media. Thanks for the download. We'll talk to you next Tuesday. Jenny, it is a pleasure to have you on Transform Your Workplace. Thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure, Brandon. Thank you so much for having me. Earlier this year, we've all been talking and hearing about the great resignation. From your perspective, are people leaving employers at the same clip they were before? It seemed like the noise has died down a little bit, but curious in your experience what, what it's been like recently. You know, I, I try to track a lot of different sources, and it seems as though I just saw something from McKinsey that said that the quit rate was still 25% higher than pre-pandemic levels, which that's different from, you know, nine months ago. It's hard to know. There's so much noise in the system. We're hearing about layoffs. We're hearing about recession. We're hearing about all these things that might suggest that people want to go back and have a sense of security. I, I honestly don't know where we stand. I think people are starting to stick their heads out again post-pandemic and say, what do I now want? And I know that I want something different, which the great resignation didn't just happen because of COVID. It happened because people were frustrated. The number one reason was that they didn't have career advancement, according to one report that I read. The number two reason was money. The number three reason was uncaring and uninspiring leaders. So yeah, this is all from McKinsey. I thought it was really, really interesting. So, you know, I think both employers are trying to figure out as we return to work in a hybrid, generally hybrid environment, what is it going to take to keep people? And I think people are still figuring out what is it that I want to do, but a lot of it has to do with how do I want to be treated when I do go back to work? Yes, yeah, it's always interesting because we've heard for forever that employees leave managers. And it seems like if we give our managers the tools to be able to help develop our people, help them career path, and then obviously empower them, care about them, then maybe those, you said the top three reasons had to do with the manager and, and career pathing. So it seems like we could solve some of the issue of people quitting just by giving our managers the tools. I wish it were that easy because it, you're right. I mean, it's common sense, right? You and I just came up with a solution. And yet 
based on all my years in this business, one of the gaping holes in this whole equation to me is leaders aren't being very often trained, expected, or incentivized to work with their teams in that way. We've become dehumanized, many of us as employees. And, you know, I'm not trying to cast aspersions. I was a leader, right? And and I want to believe that I was a compassionate and conscious leader. And so people go in with good intentions, but to the extent that no one is really saying, what did that employee engagement survey say about your team and you as a leader? And wow, we got some issues and I'm going to dock you 10% on your bonus this year because you really left some people hanging. We're seeing attrition specifically in your area. I don't hear about those kinds of conversations. So I think that a lot of it has to do with the way leaders are haven't been incentivized. They have the tools. But again, I think they just kind of pointed to HR. It's like, oh, shoot, I have to do that performance evaluation again. I don't want to have to do that. You know what? That's for your benefit. You probably stand. You, you might even find some untapped talent on your team if you were to engage and spend more of your time in one-on-ones with your team than you spend trying to do the work. And I think a lot of leaders forget that you might be a domain expert, but the farther up you go, the less time you need to be spending on that domain expertise and the more time managing and leading the people on your team to help them develop. I know that was a mouthful. No, that's that, that's really good advice. For weeks, it seemed like the noise was around this whole quitting concept. Is this related to the Great Resignation? Like, what's your whole take on this thing? I've heard it. It's very polarizing on both sides of this topic. I'm always a little bit amused when these terms come out. You know, I heard about this a few months ago. It's like somebody writes an article in like the New York Times or something, and then it's like they latch onto it, and then everybody's going to have a a piece that's either pro or con against it. It, I get it. I love it. (laughs) I kind of go back to the basics. It could be a thing, but are you managing your people and leading? Those are two different things, by the way. And not all managers are leaders. Not all leaders are managers. Um, Ideally, you can get both in an individual. And I think that it's these folks, these managers and leaders who need to be tapped in to know what's going on with your people. I mean, we also know mental health is a serious issue. And so it could be that you've got people who are depressed and no one is talking to them and offering them some services that might help them out of a dark time. But my issue with the quiet quitting reference, I think, is more around, is it that people are simply doing what they were hired to do and they're not trying to go the extra mile? Is that a bad thing? Part of this whole great resignation, again, was to get us to think about how are we treating people? And for so long... I think we've seen that people have just been expected to grind it out and to be on call 24-7, and that's part of the revolt, right? Unsustainable. I didn't mention boundaries. Everybody deserves boundaries. And that was the number five reason of the, the, I didn't mention number four, which I think was, I'm forgetting, but number five was around unsustainable expectations. And so I think that's part of what people are saying. It's like, I'm just not, I'm going to do what you asked me to do, and that's it, because I want to spend time with my family. So is that quiet quitting? If you're doing 40% of your job, then you should be fired. Okay. And and I, I also think that we don't fire people enough, or at least we don't give them feedback such that they might be able to improve so that we don't have to go through that whole cycle of turnover, which is costly. So the quiet quitting thing, I think there are so many more layers to it, but again, so much of it comes back to how are you engaging with your people? 
How are you talking to them to understand what's going on with them so that you can get the most out of them so that they can feel the most gratified, satisfied, supported? I love the way you put it because to me, it's a no brainer that as, you know, as a manager leader and to your point, hopefully you have the whole package there because they are very different functions, but you know, how are you spending the time together? Are, are you having regular one-on-ones and how are you spending those meetings? Like, what are you working on together? Are you, are you having coaching conversations? Are you making progress in their career? How do you, you know, when you coach people and you work with people, how are, how are people supposed to structure a one-on-one so they get the most out of it? Well, I know that when I, I had 30 people when I was at Google in the executive recruiting. That's a lot of employees, a lot of employees direct report. Yeah. It was three separate teams concurrently. So I had diversity for executive recruiting. I had internal mobility that I was hired for the diversity piece. The head of HR asked me to create an internal mobility program once I got there two months in. And then I took over the team of non-tech recruiters. So ultimately it was 30 people all at once. And I had six direct reports. And so I met with all six every single week without fail. Wherever I was, I'd try to dial in, even if I had to change the time a little bit. And I insisted that each one of them was holding one-on-ones with their team. So they could, that was part of the time. We had half an hour. If we needed more time, we would schedule it. But I wanted a report out on not just what's your workload been about, but how are different people doing on your team? Are there any red flags that we should be paying attention to? Are they getting what they need? What are you hearing? I was told by someone, another group in HR, she came to me and she said, you know, I, you have your ear to the ground. Interesting that she thinks that. I mean, that's, you know, that's her perception, right? And she's probably right because... Part of it is because I don't ask a lot of questions, but I'm open and I'm trustworthy. So people will come to me and I, and I take action on stuff, right, out of consideration for the business and for the people in the business. So I guess I, I'll go back to just saying the one-on-ones are there for you to understand what's going on with your people as well as what's going on in terms of getting your workload managed effectively in a timely way. How are you helping them nudge their careers forward? Would you weave that into the conversation or is that a bigger check-in? I would regularly ask and I'd sometimes I would hear about either people would tell me or I'd hear about people who are interested in a different role or what's, how is this working out? Is this, what do you see yourself doing in, in 12 months, in six months? Is this assignment to these clients, is that working out? Should we get different people on the team to support you differently? Those are the kinds of questions that you've got to ask. Because, you know, you've got to be able to zoom out and understand what the client might be looking for. Because, I mean, whether you have internal, as I did, internal clients, and what the individual is able and capable to do. So it kind of cuts both ways. It's tapping in. It's asking questions. I would also sit in on everybody's performance evaluations. So all 30 people. And I would, so I would give my six theirs. And then for the other 24, I would sit in. And listen, and it was only, what, was it twice two or twice a year? Time well spent just to understand and to see how my directs were managing their people and what kinds of questions they were asking. You really did have your ear to the ground. I mean, the fact that you're sitting in the one-on-ones regularly with your people, and I'm sure they're relaying information from their people, and then you're sitting in the performance evaluations twice a year for all of these employees. That's 
fantastic. It was important to me. Who am I there to serve if not them first, right? Right. Well, and I'm sure people appreciate a leader like you who who understands what they're going through and probably listens and takes action based on what they're what they're saying. And if we have people leaving because people aren't like you and listening and being empathetic and empowering them, they're leaving for those things. They desire it. And what I worry about with people, leaving their current employer, they go to another one, just hoping that they're going to get lucky and find somebody like you. Do you find that that's what people are just taking the chance? Like, hey, I've taken a leap of faith and nothing could be worse than where I just came from, right? I quote a Gallup. It's it's from 2016, the Gallup poll. You've probably seen it where it said that only 18% of those polled felt that their leader or manager was good at leading, meaning 82% of leaders aren't good at it. Come on. So it's consistent now, isn't it? This is why we're seeing the great resignation. Yeah. I'm curious, like early on in the process when, you know, the recruiting process, the hiring process, and even onboarding. So that just that whole experience, what are some red flags that people might see early on to say, this is not going to be a place where I can have my career develop? There are so many. I mean, because sometimes we all try to put in the interview process, everybody's trying to put their best foot forward, right? I mean, a good leader or manager is going to want to make you, the candidate, think that they're going to treat you well and they care and all of this, right? Doesn't always happen, but I always encourage candidates to be discerning, listen for and ask questions about what is your approach to leadership? How often does the team get together? What are some of the reasons that people have left? Do you do exit interviews? You know, you can ask those questions and you'll get a sense and and don't overlook eye contact, you know, sort of nonverbal kinds of cues. If people look away or they brush it off or you know, all these little things, trust your gut. There's a whole sort of nonverbal element to all of this and how you're assessing your prospective employer, just like I as a recruiter would be assessing a candidate. So it cuts both ways. How, when you're sitting on the employer side of the equation of the recruiting, hiring, onboarding process, it's a, there's a lot to unpack there, but how could they improve the process so people feel connected, uh, they know it's expected of them, and they feel part of the, the organization from day one? This isn't going to be popular, but slow it down. Slow the process down. So keep in mind, I come from senior executive recruiting ranks where it would take at Spencer Stewart, the average search was four to six months. That's what it takes. And it's a long time, but at the executive level, you're not processing applications as much as you have a mandate to go into the world because most large-scale organizations for very senior kinds of roles want to get the best talent in the world. So go look for it. That was the charge. At Google, it was a similar charge, but what made it difficult for me coming from an agency was that a lot of the hiring managers there were used to doing more junior level kinds of searches where they're pulling from you know a database, an ATS of in Google's case at the time, it was 4 million applicants to hire 25,000 people. Whereas at the executive, in the executive recruiting area, we hired more like five to 600. Now I think it's almost 800 senior leaders, directors and up. So that's a big endeavor as well. But I, you know, I think there's process. People are just going too fast. I think the algorithms are not set right. I think a lot of people just get spun out simply because and I, I've said this, it's a report from John Fuller from Harvard Business School who talks about untapped talent or hidden talent. And he's suggesting there are 27 million people in the world, in the U.S., 70% of the workforce. 
who get just cast aside because they might not have a degree. They might have mental or physical disabilities, a trailing spouse, formerly incarcerated. And, you know, I'm not talking about people who are sick, but people who have some of these attributes that we have determined are not worthy of consideration. And that makes me sad because I'm someone who has always believed in competency-based assessment. And I think in education, that pedigree thing is a myth. You've heard of the pedigree myth. I think we invest way too much in, well, which schools do they go to? Which companies do they work for? And we assume that they're good when experience doesn't mean that you did it well. And and this is, <laughs> and I've seen it, you know, I've seen some amazing resumes of people who are incompetent. That's That's just incredible. What you said, I resonate with so much. What I can't help thinking about and just the idea of the slowing down the process is that so many employers feel like they're going to miss out on talent if they don't go fast enough. Like I've heard time and time again, it's like we missed out on somebody because we didn't move fast enough on an offer, whereas somebody else scooped them up. That's a, I think that's a real thing in some cases, but you know, what's what's your rebuttal to that? Well, and again, I have to, to, to say, remind you that, you know, most of my recruiting days were in executive search. So it is, it's a different approach. It's true. It takes a lot longer. Yeah, it takes longer and it's a lot more relationship oriented. And one of the things that I tried to do at Google was to get some of the senior leaders, some of Sundar Pichai's direct reports to even look at people, not even for opportunistic situations, but here's some talent that the next time you're in New York, call this person. We'll facilitate a conversation for you guys to get together. It's relationships. Because unfortunately, that's what a lot of these companies have relied on, relationships, people they know. So they're high, the, the incestuousness, right? And you want to talk about a lack of diversity? Do you think that's why? That contributes. Yeah. So go identify, let us help you by identifying some other kinds of talent, diverse, you know, geographically, uh, racially, whatever, but develop a relationship with these folks so that when the time comes, you can say, hey, we've been talking for a couple of years. I've got the great situation for you now. What do you think? Now, I know that's hard when you're moving at scale. I know it, it doesn't necessarily translate, but you get my point in this. And was that person that one that you think got away? Were they the best person for the job or did they just meet your immediate need of what you thought you needed? And this is my other gripe. I think a lot of organizations are not assessing their talent needs in the context of their business strategy, which might well have changed. Certainly the operating strategy probably did in the last couple of years. And so are you adapting your organizational structure and the roles that you now decide need to be in your organization? Are you just whipping out a five-year-old job description and saying, go find me this? I'm going to go on a limb and say that's what they're doing right there. (laughs) I think they are too. How How do they analyze what they need? in the future. Cause I think that's what we're talking about is like you, you have to figure out what your future needs are. Yeah. How about it? Five years down the road. What do we need? Don't, don't you do that in strategic planning every year, like big picture the you know, senior folks are sitting up there and HR, that's what they're there to do. These HR folks are trained to do this. And yet there's these big gaps. We go from the strategic plan to the operating plan to a headcount plan, which is different from a talent plan, right? The talent means you're The talent plan means you're looking at who do we have in our organization? Who might we be able to move out, to move up, to move over and redeploy? Because, and now what does that require? That you know the competencies and capabilities of your individual team members so that you can now meet this new need that you have for your business. 
that's the ticket right there. Take the time to do it. I, that's why I love what you said about like keeping talent, even if they're not inside the organization, but these relationships that you develop. Because if you have a talent plan going forward and you know like, hey, I met and I interviewed somebody who wasn't a fit at the time because we didn't have a role that we needed. But now you're calling upon them later on like, hey, I've got this perfect role for you. And we've spent some time and you can calibrate them. The leader can calibrate how they might fit in as compared to other people inside the organization, right? Because there's, remember, there is going to be, and this is a little off topic, but between the internal mobility, people want to hire from within. And I get that. At the same time, people say they want diversity, which has to come from the outside by definition. They are mutually exclusive. They're at odds. It's kind of ironic that I have both of those responsibilities. But I had to remind people, there are going to be times when you absolutely should take the internal person because they can do more for what your business needs now and in the future. Having said that, to the extent that you have underrepresented individuals who are as capable, there will be times when you need to go with that individual. Competency should decide that, not what you're most comfortable with and what's the easiest. This isn't about easy. So correct me if I'm wrong, you led diversity hiring at at the leadership level for Google for four and a half years. What's one of the biggest pieces of advice you'd give to people who are looking to drive diversity at the leadership level in organizations? Whereas you may not have, you may have the same people sitting around the table that you've had for five, 10 years, and it's impossible to, to move the needle but they want diversity. And, and even at the lower levels, they, they look around at the leadership table and there's no diversity. You're going to have a hard time hiring diversity at even the lowest levels. What kind of advice can you give us? I'll try to be relatively efficient because there is a lot, but so many of the things that I've been talking about around the foundation of how you treat all talent flow into this. Because if you have your favorites and you're not really managing people You're just kind of allowing them to do whatever they want to do because they're smart, because they're experts. That's not an environment that is going to value equity and fairness, trust, all these other things, right? So the foundation, following the processes, the performance evaluations, all of these things, monitoring employee engagement surveys, um, following up and investigating things when, you know, when you hear about bad behavior, holding people accountable for creating a culture that is supportive, that is safe for all, that contributes markedly to one's ability to attract underrepresented backgrounds, right? The assessment piece is critical. Competency-based assessment. Stop hiring your friends in the interest of time. Put them in the mix and get other candidates and assess them all fairly. And I realize that for some of the lower levels, it can be hard to discern what competencies are. And so you you know, you kind of just check the box and you go based on experience. It's a slippery slope and it's not a good way. There's got to be some other mechanism in there. The interview process can do it, but it also requires that the interviewers are asking the right question. So unpack that. It's So much of this has to do with process. And I think speed, you can accelerate it to the extent that everybody's on board and there's consistency. But to have a leader come back and go, I didn't like that candidate. They were weird. No, that's not feedback. That's super subjective. Well, it's super subjective. And that's what you can't have. So, you know, I guess I would ask for certain leaders to honor some of the protocols and processes that your talent acquisition executive individuals are attempting to put in place. There's a reason for that. And then I think lastly, it has to do with what are your beliefs, right? What are your beliefs and your biases? And your fears. Are you afraid of taking a risk? 
with this underrepresented person being in your organization? Have you thought about the possibility that this individual, in my case, I know for sure as an African-American woman throughout my 30 plus year career, I have been underleveled, undercompensated, undervalued, and underestimated. And given that, might it not make sense, might it not follow that I could be in another organization at a level below where you want me? And yet I've been ready. So people get, again, so caught up in titles and where are you now versus where can you play because I see how good you are. A couple of times you'd mentioned competency-based assessments. Are you using a tool for that? Because that, when we talk about subjectivity versus objectivity, assessments could do the trick when it comes to leveling the playing field. What do you use for that? They can help. They can be time consuming and expensive in some cases. I mean, if you know, it, when you know, at a Google where they're hiring 20, 25,000 people, I, I don't know that you can do that, but there are ways. And at, at Google for an executive recruiting, we had a library of competencies and leadership competencies specifically. And the whole goal was it, it's not that everybody needed to have all 60, it was simply that the recruiter and the hiring manager needed to decide between themselves, these are the top three to five competencies that I need for this job. And that allowed the recruiter to go out and say, check, check, check. And here are, you know, 12 prospective candidates who meet all of those requirements. So let us help you vet them. So I think the the competency piece, you know how to ask questions about how, not just what. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. You're basically giving the interviewer, hiring manager tool, like questions to ask, sort of suss out the competencies, whether they have it or not. Okay, interesting. They could be like herding cats. That's one of the hardest things. These these hiring managers, because they have it in their mind, especially at a place like Google where there's 4 million applicants, they're like, just show me more, show me more, show me more. It's like, no, you know, for if you're hiring a general counsel or a treasurer, <laughs> there aren't going to be 250 prospective candidates. You don't want that many, right? Don't you want the top 10 in the world? Yeah, too many options on the menu is often not good for us. That's exactly right. Yeah. What's one of the biggest lessons you've learned in all the years as an executive and leadership recruiter? Either about people you're hiring or about the process. I, you can take this any direction you want, but I, I've got to get in the mind of you. Like you. You've got such a great background. I can't let you leave without getting inside your head a little bit. I want to know how people think as a recruiter. And I know for myself, I have found my voice. I've found year after year, I, I, I'm a systems thinker. So I process all the different experiences that I've had in a way that helped me become a good leader, how, helped me go from being in the commercial real estate business to executive recruiting as an individual contributor to managing a team to having been an entrepreneur at one point. So, and it's not that I'm confused. It's not that I'm meandering. I'm willing to explore. I've had the courage to explore and I know how I think and I have built my narrative and I'm very clear about my path historically and the one going forward. And I think a lot of people aren't clear in their own minds about who they are and what they know and what they're good at. And I so want people to spend the time to get to know themselves so that when they're sitting across the table from someone in an interview or if that interviewer is sitting across the table from a candidate, they can meet on a human level that is really more about how do you think and what do I need and how might I help you as a prospective employer? So to me, that's when I zoom all the way out, those are, those are sort of the most important things. And I'll come back to the tool 
the most useful tool for that is competency-based assessment. The individual needs to assess their competencies. The hiring manager needs to be able to assess competencies to make the least objective kinds of decisions. It's art and science. It's not perfect. The inventory, you can, you know, it's it, the tools aren't going to do it for you. It's imperfect, but it, you can get closer to it, especially if you're in touch with who you are and your biases, your beliefs, your fears. I want to end with this, and this is kind of flipping it to the career side. You talk about purpose, finding purpose in your work a lot. I, I was looking at your LinkedIn and you got tons of content around this. And I, I've been paying attention to this a lot lately just because I feel like there, so many people are lacking purpose and meaning in their work and they're just kind of doing a job and bouncing around. And I feel like that's just damaging to a career long term if they, if they can't find out their why. What advice would you give people who are sort of just swimming <laughs> in a job without purpose, essentially? If you can, step out and find your purpose. And it's going to, it might change. I, I think it's, it comes down to, and I'm, I'm deeply spiritual in the sense that I, in a, you know, I'm never trying to impose my beliefs, but I do think that we all have maybe not a singular purpose, but at different points in our lives, we have a purpose. My son's 26. His purpose right now is to learn and to honor the passion that he has for the entertainment world right? Learn everything you can and get good and then just keep going. He's going to stay in that. I'm pretty certain he'll stay in that world. For the rest of us, allow yourself to explore and understand and tap into what makes your heart sing and just suspend the doubt and the pressure of feeling like you need to do that thing that you went to school to study. It just, just for a minute, just what if you could do anything, what would it be? And how, do, how would it make you feel? And I think there's a quote, I'm not going to get it exactly right, but I think I posted on LinkedIn from Howard Thurman, and he's saying essentially this. It's, you know, figure out what activates and, and brings you joy, and then go do that, because we, that's what we need in the world right now, are people who care about what they're doing and how they can be of service. It seems to me that people are staying put because they're comfortable, it's safe, secure but and they're they're not being curious they're not learning they're not stepping out and and looking objectively at their career and i think they're miserable yes i think so too and and there there's a direct correlation between that and poor mental health now isn't there there's so much more we could we could talk about but i just really appreciate your time jenny this is such a fun conversation thanks for letting me bounce around i just wanted to tap into to all the experience that you had and i, I really appreciate you any like just parting thoughts or or any resources you want to drive people to i know you got a lot of great work out there so feel free to point out. oh thank you my parting thought is really just building on the this whole notion of purpose and urging people to stay calm this is a, a tumultuous time in our entire civilization. You are not alone. And it's not, I don't want to say this will pass, but I want people to understand how much agency you have in creating something new for yourself now. That's really my message. Um, you can find me at JennyClark.com and I'm on LinkedIn and Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. And I've got interesting content around fifth dimensional leadership, my podcast as well. So take a look and uh, hear more about what I have to say. But Brandon, you've been terrific. I really appreciate you. My guest today has been Jenny Clark. Jenny, thank you for being part of the podcast. Really appreciate you and just keep up the great work. Excellent job. Thank you.
The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed are the guest's own and do not represent the views, thoughts, and opinions of ZenMHR or the host, Brandon Laws. The material and information presented on Transform Your Workplace is for general information and educational purposes only. Zenium HR or the host, Brandon Laws, does not necessarily endorse any guest, their business, or any organization they represent. Discretion is advised. Please work with a trusted advisor to find a custom approach that fits your organization's needs.